Are you tired of battling through the dreaded pre-period week or struggling with menopause symptoms? It's time to reclaim control with Estro Control. When I'm not feeling like myself, I'm not able to show up as my best self for my family, my friends, or my podcast team. Luckily, I found Estro Control. The formula is designed to make that time of the month a breeze so you can finally feel like yourself again. And for those battling through menopause or perimenopause, Hormone Harmony is here to help. With their science-backed adaptogenic blend, you can conquer hot flashes, low moods, poor sleep, and more. Happy Mammoth, the company behind Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Join the thousands of women who swear by Happy Mammoth's products. It says something that a bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Plus, the adaptogenic blend helps your body adapt to hormonal changes naturally. Whether you're dealing with PMS woes or menopause struggles, Happy Mammoth has you covered. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what women mention over and over in their reviews. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code MURDERISH at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code MURDERISH for 15% off today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussions about the death of children. Listener discretion is advised. They say blood is thicker than water. But what happens when that blood bond is exploited by someone who seems to be a narcissist? Today, we're exploring a twisted case involving two cousins whose trail of violence impacted four generations of their wealthy family and reached an explosive conclusion in the summer of 1985. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish, Join me as we untangle the stranger-than-fiction case involving cousins Fritz Klenner and Susie Newsom Lynch. This case takes us to Reedsville and Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Reedsville, North Carolina was once a major producer of tobacco. In the late 19th century, it became a major cigarette manufacturing site for the American Tobacco Company, which employed dozens of residents until its closure in 1994. Winston-Salem falls within a region of North Carolina known as the Piedmont Triad that also encompasses Greensboro and High Point. In 1937, Krispy Kreme, the company famous for its donuts and coffee got started in what is now historic Old Salem in Winston-Salem. Nowadays, the area is an artsy college town with a modest cost of living. The main players in this case are part of the same extended family, which makes it somewhat difficult to follow. Susie Sharp Newsom was born on December 24, 1946 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. She was the only child of Robert Newsom Jr. and his wife, Florence Sharp Newsom. 
Susie was named after her aunt on her mother's side, Susie Sharp. Florence's sister made the family proud. She was the country's first elected female chief justice of a state Supreme Court. The Newsoms undoubtedly hoped their daughter would follow in the footsteps of her namesake. And decades later, Susie would go on to make an impact, though not in a way her parents could ever fathom. Born into wealth just like her father, Susie's childhood was carefree. Those who knew her described Susie as smart, pretty, and spoiled. Though she was prone to temper tantrums when she didn't get her way, most of Susie's classmates liked her. After high school, Susie stayed local, enrolling in Wake Forest University. She was reportedly very popular with members of the fraternity and had her pick of love interests. However, only one guy caught her attention, a handsome basketball player named Tom Lynch. Tom, a Louisville, Kentucky native, was two years older than Susie. He had also grown up in a wealthy household. Tom and Susie dated throughout college, and soon, Tom decided to propose. But there was one major issue. Tom's mother, Dolores Lynch, despised Susie, and the feeling was mutual. Dolores tried to persuade her son not to marry Susie to no avail. The couple got married on June 6, 1970, and on their special day, Dolores and Susie got into a quarrel which set the tone for their entire relationship. A few months after getting married, the newlyweds relocated to Lexington, Kentucky. Tom had been accepted into the University of Kentucky's dental school, and Susie was happy to put some distance between herself and Dolores. Despite living a mere 85 miles away, Tom and Susie only visited Dolores one time during a four-year period. While this probably had a lot to do with Susie's feelings toward her mother-in-law, what also factored in was a lack of free time. While Tom was absorbed in his studies, Susie was working at a research firm. They lived under the same roof, but led relatively autonomous lives. 1974 brought more changes when Tom enlisted in the U.S. Navy Reserve, prompting the pair to move again this time to Beaufort, South Carolina, where they welcomed their first son, John Wesley. Of course, Dolores wanted to meet her first grandchild, and Susie reluctantly allowed it under very specific conditions. Dolores had to stay in a hotel room and call Tom for an appointment to visit the baby. In 1976, Tom and Susie welcomed their second son, James Thomas, who everyone called Jim. Dolores wasn't given the opportunity to see the newborn for nearly a year. This was in part due to another relocation. With Jim only a few months old, the young family packed up and headed for Albuquerque, New Mexico. Tom had completed dental school and intended to start his own practice there. Tom was utterly consumed with getting his business off the ground, while Susie was left raising the two young boys, mostly on her own. She was not particularly fond of New Mexico either. In Susie's opinion, the locals lacked fashion sense and had a bland culture overall. Feeling like a single mother took a toll on Susie, and her patience for the children wore thin. 
According to an article in the Statesville Record, one neighbor reportedly saw evidence of beatings on both of the Lynch boys, but did not report it to authorities. Soon enough, Susie's emotions came to a boiling point, and she could no longer contain the resentment she felt toward her husband. Their arguments grew increasingly tense and happened more frequently. In July of 1979, Susie made a rash decision. She told Tom that she was taking the boys to North Carolina. Her grandfather was dying, and she wanted to spend what little time he had left by his side. Susie's explanation turned out to be a tall tale. Just an excuse to get away from Tom and allow Susie time to decide if she wanted to remain married. Susie never did return to New Mexico. After some urging, Tom signed a separation agreement which gave his estranged wife full custody of John and Jim, who were four and three years old at the time. Soon, Susie grew restless in her hometown and longed for a change of scenery, this time to a place of her choosing. At the end of that year, Susie and the boys moved to China, where she taught English. They remained there for just under six months. Susie could not stand the air pollution and city grime. By June of 1980, Susie and her sons wound up back in Greensboro. Her mother was concerned. Susie looked thin, pale, and weak from the stress of her separation. She urged her daughter to visit her cousin, Susie's uncle, Dr. Fred Klenner. Dr. Frederick Robert Klenner Sr. was a bit of a quack. At least that's how he was perceived by members of the Reedsville medical community. He had all the proper credentials. He was a graduate of the Duke University School of Medicine, trained at North Carolina Tuberculosis Sanitarium, and he had his own practice. His specialty was diseases of the chest, but he practiced general medicine as well. And some of his medical advice was a bit outlandish. Dr. Klenner prescribed massive doses of vitamin C to his patients, toting it as a miracle cure. According to findagrave.com, on May 23, 1946, Dr. Klenner delivered the world's first set of surviving identical African-American quadruplets, the Fultz sisters. Because he dosed the newborns with high levels of vitamin C, he took the successful birth as proof that it worked. Though none of his patients in a span of 30 years suffered ill effects from the vitamin, it's doubtful the vitamin single-handedly saved lives. Dr. Klenner's practice was in Reedsville, the hometown of his wife, Annie Hill Sharp Klenner. The pair met at Duke University where Annie worked as a registered nurse. Soon after getting married, Fred started his own practice and employed Annie to assist him. The Klenners went on to have two daughters, Marianne and Gertrude. On July 11, 1952, their only son and third child was born. The boy was named Frederick Robert Jr. after his father. To differentiate between father and son, everyone called the new child Fritz. The Klenner kids experienced a childhood that was far less carefree than most. Dr. Klenner was overly strict and anything short of perfection was unacceptable, especially when it came to his son. Being the only boy and the youngest in the family meant added pressure on Fritz to get straight A's and obey his father's demands. 
If Fritz acted out, Fred retaliated by withdrawing his attention. The worst possible punishment for someone like Fritz who needed constant positive reinforcement. There were happy moments too. Fred sometimes took young Fritz to his office in downtown Reedsville. On occasion, they would go on hunting trips together. Dr. Klenner also had a darker, more eccentric side, and some of his unconventional beliefs were projected onto his children. He endorsed an ultra-conservative and apocalyptic brand of Catholicism, held racist viewpoints, and possessed a fearful loathing of communism. His outlook of the world shaped Fritz's viewpoint as he got older. Fritz graduated from Reedsville High and went on to attend the University of Mississippi, or Ole Miss as students there called it. As far as anyone knew, Fritz graduated and then enrolled in Duke's University's medical school. It was all a lie. In reality, Fritz dropped out of Ole Miss and never attended Duke. He managed to maintain the ruse by renting two apartments, one in Reedsville where he lived, and the other in Durham, where he stayed Monday through Thursday to bolster his claims of attending class or performing rounds at Duke Medical Center. Fritz's compulsive lying did not stop there. In his college years, he adopted a survivalist lifestyle and started stockpiling guns bought from local shops. According to the Courier-Journal, he told the owners of one shop in Hillsborough far-fetched tales of rescuing his father from death and heroic acts he had performed while serving in Vietnam. He also told friends that he was working with the CIA. When he wasn't painting a false image of himself, Fritz worked in his father's downtown Reedsville clinic. According to the Courier-Journal, Dr. Klenner's patients called Fritz Young Dr. Klenner. Fritz's friends, on the other hand, nicknamed him Dr. Crazy because he casually dispensed what he called stress pills, in addition to the high-dose vitamin C from his father. Fritz was working in the clinic on a day when Susie came in, following her mother's advice. The cousins were not very close as children, but upon being reunited, they became inseparable. Fritz spent most nights with Susie and her sons at their apartment near Guilford College. In a matter of weeks, Fritz became a father figure to the boys, taking them on camping trips and insisting they call him Papa. Perhaps it was too uncomfortable to even entertain the idea, but friends and family turned a blind eye to what was obviously happening. The two first cousins were in a relationship. As taboo as it may sound, it is legal in North Carolina, even now, for first cousins to cohabitate, engage in sexual relations, and get married. From the beginning of their relationship, Fritz took on the role of Susie's protector. Rather than keeping her safe, however, he manipulated her. Gold jewelry is like the icing on the cake to a fabulous outfit. I wear it daily and I've developed a little bit of an obsession with buying new gold jewelry more often than I'd like to admit. But I don't feel guilty about it anymore because I found Victoria Emerson, a jewelry line that creates beautiful pieces for everyone at a great price. 
Today, I'm wearing my Shimmer Herringbone chain necklace and my Jupiter Snake chain bracelet by Victoria Emerson, and I can wear them with any outfit. With their on-trend boho cuffs, earrings, and necklaces, I'm not surprised that celebrities like Vanessa Hudgens and Jessica Alba are fans of the brand. Victoria Emerson makes each piece with genuine materials, so you'll enjoy real crystals, 14 and 18 karat gold, and double A plus pearls when you wear their stylish pieces. Their jewelry is not only gorgeous, but it's functional. Both of the gold necklaces I own have multiple fasten points, so I can wear them like a choker or more loosely. Brand new styles just landed online for the fall season. Listeners can buy one, get one free on the entire collection by visiting victoriaemerson.com murderish and using code murderish. Once again, that's victoriaemerson.com murderish and use code murderish. The holidays have me a little stressed per usual, and I've found myself playing best fiends more often. I figure it's probably because playing best fiends calms me down as I get lost in the game. Best Fiends is a challenging and fun casual mobile puzzle game that I play throughout the day when I need a break from script writing and recording. And here's a pro tip. I also play Best Fiends when I go to the grocery store looking like absolute hell and I see someone I know in line. The last thing I want is to strike up a conversation, so I just throw my head down and start playing Best Fiends and boom, crisis averted. I have a hunch you'll get hooked on Best Fiends like me. The game is really engaging. With an immersive storyline, fiends you can collect along the way, and so many puzzles, you're going to find yourself not being able to put it down. And you don't even need Wi-Fi to play, you can play in offline mode. And don't worry, you'll never run out of levels because Best Fiends adds new ones constantly. If you need a quick pick-me-up or a way to avoid people when need be, Download Best Fiends and start playing. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. My eight-year-old and I have been cooking HelloFresh meals together and it's been a huge hit. She loves the activity and I love that we put dinner on the table easily and quickly. Last week, we made the lemon dill lobster ravioli and shrimp and shockingly, my daughter loved it. She's such a picky eater, like most kids, but this HelloFresh meal is totally kid-friendly. We cooked it in under 30 minutes, and it was so easy that my daughter had no trouble following along with the instructions. All of the ingredients came pre-portioned, and cleanup afterward was a snap. HelloFresh offers meals that are vegetarian, calorie-smart, gourmet, pescatarian, and quick and easy, so there's a meal plan for everyone. And you won't get stuck with too many meals, because HelloFresh allows you to easily skip a week, switch meal plans, or make other changes in just minutes. Go to HelloFresh.com Murderish14 and use code Murderish14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com Murderish14 and use code Murderish14 for up to 14 free meals plus three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Fritz concocted a narrative that fed off of Susie's paranoia. He told her that her ex, Tom, was planning to kidnap the boys. In response, Susie tightened her grip on the boys by refusing to let them speak with their father during routine weekly calls. 
She also disposed of any gifts sent by him or his ex-mother-in-law, especially baked goods. She feared they might be poisoned. The visitation agreement following their divorce stated Tom could visit the boys during some holidays and have them in New Mexico for several weeks in the summer. Susie was extremely strict about only adhering to the guidelines in the court document. One summer, John and Jim arrived in Albuquerque looking pale and acting timid. When Tom saw the super-strength vitamin C pills the boys were instructed to take daily, he was alarmed. After that point, Tom and his new wife, Kathy, began fighting for more visitation rights for the boys' safety. The ensuing legal battle only seemed to substantiate Fritz's claim that Tom wanted to take the kids away from Susie. Fritz always seemed to have a scheme up his sleeve. With Susie in his life, he had found a new sense of purpose. Staying in her good graces meant protecting her sons. And so, Fritz promised her she would never lose custody. He then enacted a plan to stay true to his word. In July of 1984, Tom Lynch was in the middle of an extended visit with the boys when he received catastrophic news. His mother and sister were dead. Tom's mother, Dolores Lynch, lived in Prospect, Kentucky, a suburb roughly 20 minutes outside of Louisville. Violent crime just didn't happen in Oldham County. Dolores experienced loss from an early age. When the Pennsylvania native lost her father at age 15, her brother Elmer took on the role of provider for the family. He worked tirelessly while Dolores finished high school. He also set aside money so his little sister could attend nursing school. Dolores went on to marry Charles Lynch, who enlisted in the Navy during World War II. Chuck, as everyone called him, hastily proposed to Dolores just before being sent off for service. They married in 1942. The Lynches subsequently had two children. Janie was born in October of 1944 and Tom in August of 1947. If there was ever happiness in Chuck and Dolores' marriage, it was short-lived. He was a constant thorn in her side. But Chuck made sure his family lived comfortably. Before and after the war, Chuck worked as an accountant at the General Electric plant in Pittsburgh. In the 1950s, Chuck's career had him traveling a lot, leaving Dolores home with the kids quite often. His career also caused the family to move four times in the span of three years. The longest stretch of time was spent in South Chicago, where Dolores landed a job as a school nurse at her son Tom's high school. Around the time the kids were in college, Chuck transferred to Louisville. Though Dolores was annoyed by yet another relocation, she was happy to get away from Chicago, where the neighborhood children annoyed her enough for her to threaten them with a BB gun. Their new home on Covered Bridge Road in Prospect was isolated and peaceful, just the way Dolores liked it. But when Chuck retired in 1980, Dolores' mood turned increasingly sour, and she wasn't quiet about her contempt for him. According to the Courier-Journal, to her friends, Dolores referred to Chuck as a worthless drunk and told them on multiple occasions, I wish he'd die. When Chuck passed away in November of 1983, 
Dolores was surprised by the substantial sum of money he left her. Dolores had always been a doting mother bordering on overbearing. As a widow, the attention she gave her adult children intensified. The lack of stability in Janie's childhood had caused her to be an indecisive adult. While her brother Tom always wanted to be a dentist, Janie was on her third career by the time she was in her 30s. Dolores supported her daughter every step of the way. When Janie enrolled in dental school in 1977, Dolores frequently showed up at her on-campus apartment to clean and cook meals. Though Janie's love life had been as rocky as her career path, she met someone in dental school. Phil was 14 years younger than Janie, and Dolores did not approve of the age difference. In all likelihood, Dolores felt threatened by her daughter's attention being pulled away from her. Regardless, the mother and daughter remained very close. They had their Sunday morning ritual. While Dolores went to church, Janie would stop off for two yeast donuts and coffee, which would be waiting for her mother when she returned home. On the morning of July 22, 1984, for unknown reasons, Janie did not stop for donuts. Around mid-morning, she headed straight for her mother's house and awaited her return from church. The slight change in routine may have caused Janie to be a victim of circumstance. Two days later, one of Dolores' friends drove to her house out of concern. The unnamed woman had not heard from Dolores since Sunday's church service, which was unlike her. Upon pulling into the driveway, the friend was greeted with a gruesome sight. Dolores was sprawled on her left side near the garage door. The left side of her face was completely gone, and the July heat had attracted flies, ants, and maggots. Oldham County Police Chief Steve Nobles happened to be in the area and was the first officer at the scene. Detectives Tom Sweeney and Steve Sparrow joined him moments later. Dolores' friend, who had dialed 911, told the dispatcher that Janie might be inside the house. That intel led Police Chief Nobles to theorize that maybe Janie had killed her mother, though closer examination of the crime scene dissolved that notion. A Sunday newspaper was found under Dolores' body with a Bible lying close by. This helped investigators to begin establishing a timeline. A bullet hole was also spotted near the gutter drain several feet from the storm door. It was evident that Dolores had just arrived home and was about to enter through the garage when she was shot in the head and face. Detective Sweeney cautiously made his way into the house through the unlocked storm door. Two emaciated Yorkies approached him hesitantly before hiding again. Right away, he noticed two drops of blood on the floor near the kitchen counter. In Dolores' bedroom, the contents of Janie's purse had been dumped onto the bed next to an empty jewelry box. To the seasoned detective, it seemed like a red herring, a burglary staged by the killer to throw police off his trail. Janie's body was found in the sunroom that adjoined Dolores' bedroom at the back of the house. She was barefoot and positioned face down, which suggested she had been caught by surprise. The gunman fired two shots, one landed in Janie's back near her right shoulder blade. 
The second and fatal shot hit the base of her skull and then exited from the left side of her neck, leaving a gaping hole. Since both victims were killed with a high-powered weapon like an assault rifle and at close range, detectives believed this double homicide had been deeply personal. The Oldham County Police Department felt a tremendous amount of pressure from the public to solve these grisly murders. Nobody felt safe in the suburban town. Given the shocking news, Tom asked Janie if their sons could stay with him in New Mexico a bit longer. He wanted to give the boys an opportunity to grieve the loss of their paternal grandmother and aunt. Unsurprisingly, Susie refused. To Susie's dismay, her parents had stayed in touch with Tom after their separation and subsequent divorce. Tom and Kathy would send letters, along with pictures, detailing the boys' visits with Bob and Florence Newsom. In fact, the Newsoms had agreed to testify on Tom's behalf in an upcoming court hearing. When Susie found out, she considered it a complete betrayal, and she was furious. Tom losing his mother and sister made him want to fight harder for increased visitation or custody of the boys. In an exchange prompted by a condolence letter from Susie's mother, Florence, as quoted in the Statesville record, Tom wrote, I believe that in order for children of divorce to come out of the experience as well as possible, it is vital for them to have a strong relationship with their father as well as their mother. Susie's mother, Florence, responded, Yes, we agree it is very important that the boys have a strong and good relationship with their father. We hope you and Susie can have good communication so the boys will not play one parent against the other. The Oldham County Police Department began investigating the double murder, but lacked the manpower for an investigation of this scale. According to the Courier-Journal, Chief Noble's entire department was made up of just nine officers, with only two of them being detectives. His brother, Lenny, had been promoted to detective just five weeks before Dolores and Janie Lynch were killed. He had never worked a murder case before. In assessing his department, Chief Nobles was stubborn but practical. He reluctantly called in Kentucky State Police. Though this was pre-DNA, the crime scene at the Lynch residence steered investigators toward a few theories. Janie had been found clutching a crumpled up tissue containing dog waste in her left hand. This evidence, along with the bullet hole near the back of the house, told detectives there was a good chance she had been outside when struck by the first bullet. Blood droplets in the kitchen suggested she came inside to flee her assailant. Based on scattered blood drops from her first wound, the gunman had chased her over the dog gate, down the hall, and into Dolores's bedroom. Janie ended up in the connected sunroom with nowhere else to run when she was struck with the second and lethal bullet. Chief Noble still clung tightly to his robbery-gone-wrong theory. On Dolores's white chenille bedspread, a grease smudge left behind the outline of what appeared to be a military rifle. Detectives speculated the murder weapon was laid there briefly while the killer rummaged through Dolores's jewelry box. Perhaps Janie's presence had surprised the intruder mid-robbery. He had killed her in a panic 
and then shot Dolores so there were no witnesses. Neither of the women's bodies had signs of sexual assault. Some detectives, like 14-year veteran Sherman Childers, kept going back to the valuables, like electronics being undisturbed. All of Dolores' material possessions were in place, leaving Childers to believe the motive was not robbery. If the shooter had not been out for money, what did he want? The state police mobile crime lab did not recover any empty shell casings from the scene, which also seemed odd to investigators. This finding supported Detective Childers' theory that this was a professional hit, since the average criminal would not bother to gather empty shells. The next thought was who might have motive to kill one or both of the Lynch women. According to Dolores' friends, a lot of people. As reported in the Courier-Journal, her brash and outspoken personality made people wonder if Dolores had finally offended somebody to the point that they gunned her down. Janie's former boyfriend, John Trent, remarked to the publication, Dolores was a pain in the ass. She was the kind of person you'd invite to leave, then take an aspirin and sit down to rest for an hour or two. But you know, shooting her in the head is a bit extreme. Trent obviously had not been fond of his late girlfriend's mother, but it didn't seem as if he had a motive to kill her. The way detectives saw it, the person with the most to gain from the deaths was Dolores' own son, Tom Lynch. An extensive search of the house had turned up Dolores' will. The document mentioned several large cash disbursements to Tom, Janie inheriting the house and cars, and the remainder of Dolores' estate would be divided between the two siblings. Investigators wondered if hints of favoritism in the will had created resentment. However, when Tom was brought in for questioning, he had a solid alibi. At the speculated time of the murders, he had been fishing on a lake in Colorado, which his wife Kathy confirmed. After two inconclusive polygraphs and one he passed, Tom was ruled out as a suspect. By early 1985, the double murder case had gone cold. Meanwhile, back in Greensboro, Susie was growing more agitated by her ex-husband. With the death of her former in-laws, she suspected Tom's attention would be focused more on parental rights. And now that she knew her own parents were against her, something had to be done. And of course, Fritz had an idea. He decided to lean on someone who had always admired him, Ian Perkins. The 21-year-old had known Fritz and Dr. Klenner his entire life. They belonged to the same social circles, as Perkins was also from a prominent Reedsville family. He also had a lot in common with Fritz. Among other things, they both loved guns, considered themselves American patriots, and believed communism was the most substantial threat to Western civilization. Perkins looked up to Fritz so much, he would do anything for him. And Fritz was well aware of it. Fritz reached out to Perkins in the spring of 1985, asking him for help. Fritz told him he was on a covert mission to kill foreign drug traffickers, and he needed Perkins to drive the getaway car. To coerce him even more, 
Fritz said his cooperation could lead to other top-secret missions. Perkins naively agreed to assist his friend. On May 17, 1985, Perkins drove Fritz to the Old Town neighborhood in Winston-Salem around 11 p.m. As instructed, Perkins returned just after midnight to retrieve Fritz. The only thing Fritz said as he got back into the car was that the mission was complete. At the time, Perkins had no idea what ramifications lay ahead. 85-year-old Hattie Newsom, Susie's grandmother, was respected and admired throughout the Winston-Salem community. She and her husband, Robert Newsom Sr., had enjoyed a long life of luxury, and they were generous with their wealth. They regularly made significant donations to charitable organizations and funded civic events within their community. Their fortune came from Robert's success in business. He had owned and operated several tobacco warehouses throughout the Piedmont region. Hattie was a lifelong homemaker who worked as a Sunday school teacher late in life and was passionate about gardening. When her husband died in 1980, Hattie remained in the home where they had raised their children. Her solitude concerned some of her kids, but her son and daughter-in-law dutifully spent every weekend at the house. Robert Newsom Jr., who I'll refer to as Rob Jr., had followed in his father's footsteps, making a career for himself in the tobacco industry. He served as a senior executive at the Lauriard Cigarette Plant in Greensboro before starting his own engineering firm. His wife, Florence, had a talent for teaching and worked at a handful of schools in the Piedmont area. The weekend of May 18, 1985, started like any other. Susie's parents, Rob Jr. and Florence, caught up with Hattie to help her around the house. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary until the following night. Rob Jr. and Florence's son, Rob III, had called Hattie's house but got no answer. Additionally, his father had missed an appointment that day, which was completely out of character. Out of concern, Rob III reached out to Homer and Catherine Sutton. They were longtime family friends, and Homer was Hattie's doctor. Since the Suttons lived about three miles from Hattie's place, he asked if they could check on her. It was after 10 p.m. on a Sunday night, but the Suttons agreed. Upon arriving at the house, Homer Sutton recalled to the Charlotte Observer, the light was on in the living room. I looked through and thought I saw the elder Mrs. Newsom asleep on the couch. I first thought the other woman was asleep on the floor, but I saw blood coming from her mouth. Authorities were at the scene by 10.30 that night. They observed that the glass storm door was shattered and all three victims had been shot. Initially, detectives surmised that this was a burglary gone wrong. What complicated that theory was the location of Rob Jr.'s body. He was found lying in the hall by the back door, which still had a key in the lock. Additionally, none of Hattie's valuables were missing. Hattie looked peaceful. Her body was discovered on the living room couch, draped with her favorite blanket, with the TV still on. Her daughter-in-law, Florence, lay on the floor nearby. Local police decided fairly quickly that this was a triple homicide, one that left Susie Newsom Lynch's grandmother, father, and mother dead. 
For the last few weeks, I've been using the Overnight Sensation Brightening Sleep Mask by Thrive Cosmetics, and I love it. My skin looks brighter, smoother, and it feels hydrated. When I'm going for an elevated look, I use their Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. And just like the name says, it's like I actually have lash extensions, but without the dent in my bank account. Beyond their amazing and effective beauty products, Thrive Cosmetics donates to help women who have survived domestic abuse, women who are emerging from homelessness, and more through their Bigger Than Beauty mission. It feels good knowing that every time I purchase one of their products, Thrive Cosmetics is helping a woman in need. As if that's not enough to convince you to try this company's products, they also never test on animals and you won't find any toxic ingredients because Thrive Cosmetics has a clean beauty standard. I love Thrive Cosmetics because their products work, their Bigger Than Beauty mission helps women in need, and they use clean ingredients that your skin will love. Visit thrivecosmetics.com murderish for 15% off your first order. That's Thrive, C-A-U-S-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash murderish for 15% off your first order. Thrivecosmetics.com slash murderish. If you have upcoming travel plans, but worry about losing sleep because you're not in your normal environment, check out Calm Sleep Stories. Murderish has partnered with Calm, the number one mental wellness app to help you improve the way you feel. My husband and I have been using Calm since before the pandemic. He uses Calm for guided meditation a few times each week. I use Calm to take power naps that get me through the rest of my busy day. There are so many sleep stories to choose from, and the narrator's voices lull you to sleep in no time. I'm not surprised that over 100 million people around the world use Calm to ease stress, sleep more, and just live better overall. Murderish listeners can go to calm.com slash murderish to get a limited time offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription that gives you hundreds of hours of content. I am a huge believer in sleep being a major factor to better health. And I'm telling you, play a Calm sleep story for just a few minutes and you'll be out like a light. As I mentioned, for listeners of the show, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash murderish. Go to calm.com slash murderish for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash murderish. All right, you guys, it's time to start buying holiday gifts, and I've got a great gift idea for just about anyone. Raycon wireless earbuds. I own a pair and I take them everywhere I go so I can binge podcasts while I'm walking my dogs, folding laundry, or grocery shopping without irritating those around me. The audio quality is awesome when compared to premium brands, but Raycons cost a fraction of the price. I use Raycons pure mode when I listen to podcasts, but I definitely switch my earbuds to bass mode when I'm working out to my favorite playlist. And don't worry, you don't need to charge them every day because Raycons have a 32-hour battery life. Everyone can use a solid pair of earbuds, so treat your partner, teenager, or yourself this holiday season and snag a pair of Raycons. Go to buyraycon.com murderish today to unlock exclusive deals up to 20% off your Raycon order. 
but hurry. This offer is available for a limited time only, and you don't want to miss it. That's buyraycon.com slash murderish to unlock up to 20% off your Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash murderish. News of the murders rocked the entire community, who feared a madman was on the loose. Friends and family of the Newsoms were devastated over the dramatic loss. Winston-Salem police scrambled to identify a perpetrator, even offering a $10,000 reward to anyone who could provide information leading to an arrest. It wasn't long before the tragic news reached Ian Perkins, the young man who had given Fritz Klenner a ride that night. Perkins was alarmed to hear that three people had been shot and killed a half a mile from where he had dropped off his role model. It was too much of a coincidence for there not to be a connection. Local news outlets soon confirmed the only triple homicide reported in Winston-Salem happened to occur the same night of Fritz's mission. Perkins confronted Fritz, admitting he was getting skittish. He was worried that authorities would ask about their whereabouts that night. Fritz reiterated that their covert government mission needed to remain a secret. They rehearsed what they would say to authorities, deciding they could be each other's alibi by saying they were camping together in Virginia's Blue Ridge Mountains that weekend. Just as Perkins feared, he and Fritz were brought in for questioning on May 30, 1985. Fritz stuck with the predetermined story, but Perkins cracked under the pressure. All of the details he knew came spilling out. He said he wasn't supposed to tell, but he had assisted Fritz with a covert CIA operation. Pulled from police transcripts mentioned in the Statesville record and landmark, Fritz had told Perkins he needed to kill KGB-sponsored communists who were raiding an American arsenal, smuggling guns to South America, and trading them for large quantities of drugs sold at a profit. Perhaps feeling sympathetic toward his gullibility, detectives offered Perkins a deal. Wear a wire and elicit a confession from Fritz in exchange for immunity. Now that investigators told him the truth, that Fritz Klenner was not a spy or even a real doctor, Perkins gladly accepted the deal. In the days that followed, Perkins met with Fritz on at least three occasions. On June 1st and 2nd, Perkins asked Fritz if he had anything to do with the Newsom murders. His longtime friend repeated the CIA plot and then offered Perkins some pills to keep calm during police interviews. According to The Messenger, North Carolina's State Bureau of Investigation, or SBI, had already been warned about Fritz Klenner. He was on their radar as early as spring of 1981 when an informant referred to Fritz as a dangerous psychopath who was practicing medicine without a license. This informant, Doug Birch, was a rally-based auto mechanic and one of Fritz's associates. Both men were involved in a local survivalist group. Other members of the group had also considered Fritz suspicious. After digging around and discovering he was a compulsive liar, Birch told SBI agent Mike Kelly what he had uncovered on Fritz. In support of his claims, Birch brought in a bag filled with drugs and syringes Fritz had dispensed, along with the names of his patients. 
Any intel received by the SBI regarding fake credentials or Fritz's mental instability was not enough to put him under any sort of government watch list. The state attorney general, Rufus Edmiston, never even received SBI's report. On June 3, 1985, Perkins met up with Fritz at 1 p.m. outside Zayers, a discount department store in Greensboro at the time. For the third time, Perkins wore a wire. It was a last-ditch attempt to record Fritz confessing. Otherwise, Perkins would face charges for his own involvement in the crime. As he climbed into Fritz's black Chevy Blazer, Perkins was nervous. If Fritz had done what police alleged, he was a dangerous killer, and every encounter with him meant that Perkins was risking his life. The conversation started with Perkins expressing his anxieties. As referenced in the Statesville record and landmark, Fritz seemed agitated as he hastily responded, I'll write a paper saying you were not knowingly involved, that you believe you were on a covert mission for the government. I've got things to do. I won't see you again. This was the closest Fritz had come to confessing. Perkins then exited the vehicle, hopeful the latest recording was sufficient to hold up his end of the plea deal. Little did Perkins know, a bomb sat beneath the passenger seat of the blazer where he had just been sitting. As with any sting operation, detectives had eyes on Fritz and Perkins for the entirety of their meeting. As Fritz pulled away from Zayers, a caravan of unmarked cars trailed behind. Law enforcement followed Fritz to Susie's apartment off of Friendly Avenue. It was around two in the afternoon, and Fritz had loaded up the blazer with camping equipment. Susie climbed into the passenger seat, while 10-year-old John and 9-year-old Jim barreled into the back seat. Susie's two chow-chow dogs nested between them as they drove off. A lot had happened behind the scenes between Fritz's meeting with Perkins and this pickup. As it turned out, Fritz's near confession had been enough for the Forsyth County District Attorney to authorize an arrest. This was a major turning point for multiple homicide cases. Inside the unmarked cars sat a wide range of law enforcement personnel, including SBI agents, Kentucky State Police detectives ready to question Fritz about the 1984 Lynch murders, and of course, the sheriff's deputies who had led the sting operation. Unfortunately, SBI had dropped the ball yet again. Three days prior, an unknown informant told agents Fritz would most likely be armed with automatic weapons and explosives, and that he would never be taken alive. Just as before, if SBI had logged a report on the matter, it never made it down the chain of command leaving authorities unaware of the magnitude of danger they and others were in as they followed Fritz. The unmarked cars followed Fritz's blazer for a few blocks until it reached the intersection of Friendly Avenue and College Road. One detective pulled his car in front of the blazer, flashing his badge while other officers signaled for Fritz to stop. Instead, Fritz drove up onto the curb to get around the police car and continued on, headed east. Greensboro police officer Tommy Dennis acted fast. 
He made a U-turn to get behind the blazer, and two other cars followed suit. A deputy in another vehicle swerved around Dennis, causing him to skid into Fritz's blazer. With only the hood of the squad car separating them, Fritz exited the SUV, pulled out an Uzi, and fired. Five bullets ricocheted off the squad car and wounded three officers, including Dennis. He was struck twice, once in the chest and once on his abdomen, just above the belt buckle. The bulletproof vest Dennis's wife insisted on him wearing every day had saved his life. The gunfire only served to delay a small portion of the law enforcement fleet. It gave Fritz enough time to get back into the SUV, bulldoze through any vehicles in his path, and get back on the road. Every so often, Fritz fired another round at police cars. The chase eventually led to the intersection of two major highways, NC-150 and US-220, in the town of Summerfield. They had all only traveled around 12 miles, but to law enforcement agents with a warrant for a mass killer's arrest, it probably felt like a marathon. As Fritz turned east onto NC-150, authorities noticed the barrel of a gun poking out of the driver's side window. They braced for more bullets, but instead, the sound of several loud clicks could be heard, and then the blazer exploded. The time was noted by the radio dispatch of one officer as 3.07 p.m. Concerned there might be more bombs planted or that any movement might trigger another blast, officers approached with caution. The aftermath of the explosion looked like a war zone. Susie's lower body had been blown apart and her boys died still upright in the back seat. Fritz stayed alive for a few moments longer before choking on his own blood. As if it was reacting to the horrific scene, the sky turned dark. Torrential rain paired with wind and lightning pummeled the officers, forcing them to take cover from the ensuing hail. There wasn't much physical evidence left to examine at the scene of the explosion. The SUV was a scorched husk, leaving exposed Fritz's arsenal of firearms. Additional weapons and ammunition were found stockpiled in the apartment he shared with Susie and her sons. As detectives pieced together the facts, they were left with many unanswered questions. When they connected the lynch killings in Kentucky with the Newsom murders in North Carolina, investigators were able to establish the primary motive, custody. But what role had Susie played in all of this, if any? We may never know. We do know that Kentucky and North Carolina law enforcement were closing in on Fritz because they had intel that he planned to leave town. He took his own life to avoid imprisonment, but why had Susie agreed to die beside him? Or had she? When the autopsy results came back, they revealed some surprising truths. As reported by the Park City Daily News, Fritz and Susie had died of injuries sustained in the blast. Susie's young sons, however, were determined to have died before the bomb went off. Their cause of death was a combination of cyanide poisoning and a single gunshot wound to the head. As disturbing as it was to ponder, 
Investigators sought to know who had poisoned John and Jim and who had pulled the trigger. Susie Sharp, the retired Chief Justice, refused to believe her niece was capable of killing her own children or even agreeing to someone else killing them. Sharp commented to the Park City Daily News, she wouldn't have allowed that. Maybe she was dead and sitting up in the seat before they were killed. The possibilities are limitless. I just can't imagine even a crazy person being so deranged. Another aunt, Louise Sharp, remarked about Susie to the publication, she was under his power. The lingering questions were, could Susie have been brainwashed into carrying out such an unthinkable plan? Or was it the other way around, with Susie's adoring cousin Fritz doing her bidding? Of course, Susie's ex-husband Tom Lynch had his own theories. He told the Charlotte Observer, I think it would be irresponsible for anyone to portray Fritz as a mesmerizing individual and her as an innocent victim. That is totally wrong. The only question is, who influenced the other most? Tom also pointed out to the Associated Press how everyone who had been murdered either supported Tom having more parental rights or was completely against the cousin's relationship. Tom figured he would have been next on Fritz's hit list. Perhaps there was a shared hit list Fritz and Susie had worked on together. It's also possible that Susie sustained such an intense loathing for her former mother-in-law that she insisted on helping to kill Dolores. Lieutenant Dan Davidson with the Kentucky State Police thought Susie had been pushed to the edge of reason. He told the Courier-Journal, Susan felt like longer visitation was a first step toward obtaining full custody of those children. She felt that if Dolores did not push the issue, that Dr. Lynch would not pursue it any further. One finding during the investigation erased any trace of doubt about Fritz Klenner's identity. He was an extreme survivalist. The apartment was stuffed with enough food and water to last the family six months of isolation. Hand-drawn maps of John and Jim's elementary school contained escape routes. What detectives found on the Klenner family farm made them consider whether Fritz had been involved with right-wing extremists. Fritz, Susie, and the boys could have easily hidden on the Klenner family farm without much risk of detection. The abundance of supplies suggested the original plan may have been heading in that direction. But once the police pursuit started, the cousins may have activated a suicide pact failsafe. As reported by the Park City Daily News, Investigators who searched the 165-acre farm uncovered 25 to 50 pounds of the explosive ammonium nitrate, three reinforced foxhole bunkers, 200 pounds of phosphorus, which is commonly used to make bombs, 25 marijuana plants, and enough pistols and automatic weapons for a small army. Prosecutors believed that evidence gathered supported the theory that Fritz had committed both sets of brutal murders. Including Fritz's suicide, state prosecutors attributed nine deaths to him. With the two strongest suspects dead, however, nobody could be charged for the murders. Since the lives of the two children were taken, 
There was also no custody battle. What else was there to build a lawsuit around? Money. In May of 1987, Tom Lynch filed a lawsuit against several law enforcement personnel and agencies. The list of defendants included the State Department of Justice, the State Bureau of Investigation, the City of Greensboro, and Forsyth County, among others. The suit cited a gross negligence by authorities. Tom's attorney, Richard M. Green, referenced the lack of communication across agencies regarding the SBI reports. He also criticized the haphazard approach used in trying to apprehend Fritz Klenner. Despite SBI agents knowing he was a violent man, the caravan of police cars relentlessly pursued him with knowledge that children were present. The 22-page lawsuit sought compensation in excess of $10,000. Although no ruling in that case could be found, as of early 1991, Tom's case had weakened significantly. It's possible the judge ruled against him or that the lawsuit was settled out of court. In 1989, Tom Lynch sued Robert Newsom III, Susie's brother, and sole living heir. Lumped into the same lawsuit were the estates of Susie's other wealthy relatives. Tom contended that his former wife had played a role in their son's deaths, so he should inherit the wealth owed to Susie from her family's estates. A lot of money was at stake. Hattie Newsom's estate alone was valued to be at least $900,000, or roughly $2.2 million when adjusted for inflation. The case went to trial in December 1990. According to the Rocky Mountain Telegram, in order to win the lawsuit, Tom's attorneys needed to prove that either Susie played a role in her son's killings or that she was outlived by at least one of the children. One key piece of evidence was reportedly found on Susie's hands, gunshot residue. The plaintiff's counsel believed this presented a strong argument that she had shot the boys. The defense expected this evidence to take center stage since it was the only physical link between Susie and the boys' death. The thing was, no one could say beyond a reasonable doubt that Susie had pulled the trigger on her sons. The defense called William Best, an expert in gunshot residue, to the stand. He testified there were any number of ways the residue may have gotten on Susie's hands before her death, such as grabbing Fritz's hands or handling guns that had been fired in the past, but not yet cleaned. The hearing pressed on, with Tom Lynch's attorney leaning heavily on hearsay and circumstantial evidence. Deputy D.A. Thacker gave eyewitness testimony that he saw two figures toward the front of the car lean toward the center of the vehicle before hearing loud bangs followed by the SUV exploding. Even if what he said was true, the story still failed to prove that Susie had been the shooter. As of January 1991, the two sides had reached a tentative agreement to settle Tom's case out of court. Tom would likely receive a sum of money paid out of his late ex-wife's estate. Robert Newsom III had lost half of his family to Fritz Klenner and his trail of terror. His sister, parents, grandmother, cousin, and two nephews were all gone in an 18-month time span. 
he expressed his opinion that Susie had nothing to do with any of it. In an Asheville Citizen Times article, Rob III insisted, the death of my sister and the children is directly attributable to Fritz Klenner and Fritz Klenner only. There is nothing she could have done to save the lives of any of them. I had been hoping we could have all the estates closed and start remaking our lives by now. Every so often, the tale of the two twisted cousins still appears in the news. There are enough twists and turns to keep people guessing. Even now, there are still many facets to this case that are cause for speculation. Jerry Bledsoe, columnist at Greensboro's News and Record, covered the cases linked to Fritz Klenner as they unfolded. His book, Bitter Blood, a true story of Southern family pride, madness, and multiple murder, made its debut in the number one slot on the New York Times bestseller list upon publication in 1988. Bledsoe's writing reflects some of the most extensive analysis on this case. We can't ever know what really happened between the cousins. What was said, what was intended, and what could have been all went up in a blaze with Fritz Klenner's SUV. If Susie had not reunited with her cousin that day at Dr. Fred Klenner's clinic, would all nine people still be alive? It's difficult to say. Perhaps it all comes down to fate, a union of two troubled souls who by themselves might be relatively harmless, but together made for a deadly duo. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'll be at CrimeCon in Las Vegas next year. Visit CrimeCon.com to purchase your badge. Use promo code MURDERISH for 10% off of a standard badge. I really hope to see you there. If you have 60 seconds of free time, do me the biggest favor and give Murderish a five-star rating and review in your favorite podcast app. Positive ratings and reviews help new listeners find the show. Also, find me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. It's my favorite place to engage with you guys. You can also find me on Twitter and Facebook. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish t-shirts, face masks, coffee mugs, and more. If you want more Murderish content, go to Murderish.com and click the link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber. Patreon subscribers get immediate access to bonus content as well as other perks. Thank you to Tanya S. and Gina for becoming Patreon subscribers. I appreciate you both a lot. Murderish sound design and audio editing is by Justin Hellstrom. Some of the music was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Stick around after the closing music and ads to hear a list of sources used for this episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.
Sources for this episode include a May 22, 1985 print article by the Associated Press in the Charlotte Observer, an April 5, 1987 print article by the Associated Press in the Asheville Citizen Times, a June 4, 1986 print article by the Associated Press in the Charlotte Observer, an April 5, 1987 print article by the Associated Press in the Asheville Citizen Times, a December 11, 1990 print article by the Associated Press in the News and Observer, Raleigh, North Carolina, an August 7, 1985 article by the Associated Press in The Messenger, Madisonville, Kentucky, a June 6, 1985 print article by the Associated Press in the Park City Daily News, Bowling Green, Kentucky, a May 24, 1987 print article by the Associated Press in the Rocky Mount Telegram, Rocky Mount, North Carolina, a December 4, 1990 print article by David Barron in the News and Observer, Raleigh, North Carolina, a book titled Bitter Blood, A True Story of Southern Family Pride, Madness, and Multiple Murder by Jerry Bledsoe, Diversion Books, 2014, a July 25, 1984 print article by Craig Desern in the Courier-Journal, Louisville, Kentucky, an obituary at findagrave.com on Dr. Frederick Robert Klenner. A September 13, 1985 print article by Alan Judd in the Courier-Journal, Louisville, Kentucky. A June 5, 1985 print article by Bruce Henderson and Elizabeth Leland in the Charlotte Observer, Charlotte, North Carolina. A June 3, 2021 print article by Margaret Moffitt in the Statesville Record and Landmark, Statesville, North Carolina. A June 12, 1985 print article by UPI in the News and Observer, Raleigh, North Carolina. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.